Good morning. Today is another uh, part of our American Gods series. We've talked about so far, I bet you could remember them all. I'm just going to give them all. We've talked Mormonism. <laughs> Mormonism. <laughs> we haven't talked about Mormonism yet. Um, we've talked about Marxism and materialism and Mormonism. And we've talked about atheism. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the religion of Islam. Or if you want another M, about Muslims. So this is a series we're doing on different religious movements and ideologies and systems of false worship that are in the U.S. or that are maybe specifically American, like Mormonism, but that affect us as Americans, things that we need to know and think about and understand and grapple with. Because all false religion starts where? Out there somewhere? False religion starts in our hearts. And that's why talking about these things is important, so that we can know in our hearts where we are tempted, right? That's the point. Um, about a quarter of the world is Muslim right now. I found an article from the Pew Research Center from 2017 that said they expected the number of Muslims to increase by 70% from 1.8 billion in 2015 to nearly 3 billion in 2060. That's fast-growing religion, right? That's, that's a lot of growth. And a lot of this is because Muslims believe in having babies. A lot of Christians or so-called Christian nations, nations that historically have been saturated with Christianity, the gospel, they don't. They don't. America has its own population problems. Our rate of having children has slowed down. There's a lot we could say about that. That's all that I'll say. We have a population problem. A lot of nations have population problems. They don't believe in having kids. Muslims do not have that problem. They believe in having kids. And so they're growing. Um, as far as the percentage Muslims are of America, it's about 1%. And it's less than 1% in Indiana, certainly less than 1% in Evansville. Though we have Muslims here. You've seen the mosque, right? You can see it from the, from the Lloyd in Newburgh. Um, now, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I had to laugh today. I didn't know that this flag was going to be my background. It kind of takes on a double meaning when I say the word Islam, doesn't it? What do you think of right away? What images come to your mind? What images? Yeah, of course, 9-11. Terror attacks, right? <laughs> journalists getting their heads cut off on the news. Kidnapped journalists. Um, Osama bin Laden, ISIS. I mean, we just have images. We have, we have images from Hollywood movies with Muslim villains. I could name a bunch of movies, I'm sure you could too, that are about this kind of thing, about terrorism. Um, and you could, you could go, I could point you to a website right now with speeches and videos by Muslim leaders who are in favor of terrorism who are very happy if they can shed the blood of the Israelis or the Americans, and they're promoting it. That's not, that stuff is not hard to find. You don't have to look hard. I want to ask you, do you think that this represents the average Muslim? Remember, a quarter of the world. Are most Muslims thinking about bombing America if you meet a Muslim in Evansville, is it, do you think it's likely to be someone who's trying to start a terrorist cell? No. 
No. Um, I, it, does Islam teach Muslims to do this? Yeah. So the answer to that question is yes. No. It's complicated. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, there are a lot of different Muslim groups with different perspectives, and it's important to keep that in mind. I'm, I'll say a lot more about that kind of thing and violence as we go, but I'm not here um, to make us hate Muslims. We need to love them. We'll get, to, we'll get back to that too. So what is, what is Islam? What is it? Well, it's, it's a religion that I think it's most helpful to think of as a weird spin-off of Christianity. That's how I think. I think you could think of it, if you wanted, as like a Christian cult, almost. Um, sort of like Mormonism, in that sense. Though Mormonism maybe is a little easier to see. They simply copy all the things that we say, and they mean something completely different with an alternate history. Well, Islam has some of that. Um, false religions, how do they work? They start from our heart, and they have more power the more of the truth they can copy. That's how good lies work. Good lies bring in more of the truth, so they're more plausible, and they're stronger, and that's a better lie. That's how, that's better deception. That's just how lies work. False religions are the same. You copy parts of Christianity, it works. It has some stability. So Islam was started by Muhammad, an Arab man, in the 7th century in the city of Mecca, which is now a city in Saudi Arabia. Um, Muhammad said that he was... So 7th century AD, just Christianity's already been around for 600 years, right? Right? Already been there, so remember that. Um, and he said he was visited by the angel Gabriel, who dictated to him messages from God, um, from Allah. Now, Allah is the Arabic word for God. You could be talking to an Arabic Christian and they would say Allah because that's the Arabic word for God. But Allah in Islam is also a different God, right? Not Yahweh, not the God of the Bible. Um, and so Muhammad said, I, I'm, the, I'm the greatest and the final prophet. I'm a prophet in the line of Abraham, Moses, David, and, and who am I going to say? Give me the Sunday school answer. Jesus. Jesus, right. So you can already see how he's appropriating the Old Testament in kind of the New Testament too. That was what he did. So I'm in that line. I'm the greatest. And, I'm, I'm, and what I'm going to do as I get the Quran, the holy book, dictated to me by Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is I'm going to be correcting errors that have crept in. Um, which might sound familiar to you. This is sort of like Mormonism in its way. Well, here comes Joseph Smith. Guess what Joseph Smith is going to do, the founder of Mormonism? He's going to receive special messages from God that correct all the, the errors that make Christianity or Judaism untrustworthy. Their holy books have been corrupted. Muhammad will say the same thing. Um, you can't trust the Old Testament. You can't trust the Gospels, even though as Muslims, they accept that the Old Testament, at least originally, was the Word of God, or they think of this a little differently, but anyway, was the Word of God, and that the Gospels, at least the four Gospels, those, those two, those came from God. But they've been corrupted. You can't trust them. What can you trust? You can trust the Quran. You can trust the Quran. That's the Muslim's main holy book. There are a couple of others I won't go into. Um, 
There's, there's, by the way, I just want to say, <laughs> Islam, man, is there a lot to talk about. So you're not going to hear about everything today. There are major things I'm barely going to touch. Um, so the Quran comes through only one man. Kind, again, kind of like the Book of Mormon. The Bible, you know, is written through many prophets that God inspired over centuries. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's a unified book made up of many different personalities who were perfectly inspired by God to give his word. If you look at the Bible, that's what you see. You hear that Isaiah's personality is not like the personality of the Apostle Paul. And yet all of this has a unified message. Um, the Quran has one personality. The Book of Mormon has one personality. This is Joseph Smith. The Quran comes through one man in a period of about 20 years, and that's Muhammad. And, and Muhammad was illiterate. He was illiterate. So the angel Gabriel dictated to him, he said, and then he would give those words to someone who could write them down. And that would, that would be the Quran. The Quran is a pretty short book. Um, it's, it's, there's, there's a large branch of, branch of Muslims, Sunni Muslims, who believe that the Quran is uncreated. Uncreated, it's existed with God from eternity. Again, this is different from how Christians think of the Bible. Um, the Quran is, is also only in Arabic. You can go online and read a translation of the Quran. A Muslim would say, you are not reading the Quran. That is not the Quran. That is some approximation of the Quran. The true Quran, the divine Quran, is only in Arabic. Again, this is different from how Christians think of the Word of God, which is still the Word of God in translation. Okay, that's all I'm going to tell you by way of introduction. We'll do more as we go. I want to focus on one thing, what fundamentally sets apart Christianity from Islam. One thing, um, the deepest difference, and the one that best explains Islam to us, and that is this. We have come to know God, the true God, as Christians, as our Father in heaven. We just sang about this more than once, if you were paying attention in the songs we sang. Who else invites me to call him Father? Or we're bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a Father who will never let them go. We just sang those words. Um, Allah is not a Father. He is not a Father. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. That's a very offensive idea to a Muslim. It's very offensive. Why? Because God is beyond these categories. God, Allah, in some sense, is a person. It's, it's, it's a little tricky to say how personal he is, okay? And he's not he, by the way. He's not he. He's not he or she. But it would be impolite to say it, so they say he, okay? Uh, God is beyond. He's not like you. You can't compare him to you. You certainly can't compare him to a father. Um, but we say God is our father. We say that's at the heart of Christianity. And when we say God is a father, that's connected to a very central doctrine of Christianity, which is the Trinity, right? God is Three gods in one. He's Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Could God the Father be the Father without 
God the Son? No. No. He couldn't. Um, The Bible teaches that God has always been Father and that the reason we are fathers and sons is because He is. It's not just a metaphor. We are fathers because God is the Father. So Ephesians 3, 14, and 15 say that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And the word for family is actually the word for fatherhood. It's it's a little bit tricky to translate, but God is the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named would be an accurate translation. Okay, so our God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Our God is three. Our God is one. This mystery, the Trinity, is at the heart of our faith, and it explains the world. Why are we fathers and sons? Why is there relationship at all? Why is there love? Why are there families? Because God is three and one. How many times in the past, uh, if you've been here for the Roman series, in the past two or three weeks has Jake said, we don't, we don't believe in original sin because we can explain it, right? Or because we think it's fair. We believe it because, well, God teaches it, but also it explains us. So much of God's word, like the Trinity, explains us. Can I explain the Trinity to you? No. I mean, in a very limited way. Can I resolve the mystery of the Trinity, three and one at the same time? Certainly not. No. Does it explain the whole world and does it explain us to ourselves? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Now, this is kind of the deep waters. This is kind of the deep waters, but I'm going here because I want you to know and think about who our God is. Who our God is. Who he's revealed himself to be. Um, Islam, of course, does not believe in the Trinity. Um, And if if I say to a Muslim, okay, God is a, a person, you know, sort of an absolute person. They might say, okay. If I say God is a father, they say, no, that's, that's impossible. He's beyond those categories. If I say the Son of God, <laughs> the Son of God was born of woman, that's God's Son, they would say, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. That's disgusting. So, Christ's incarnation, off limits, not possible. So who is Allah? Well, Allah made the world. Allah is sovereign. He's above us. He's self-sufficient. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. And all of this sounds like our God, right? This sounds very familiar so far. Um, He is merciful, although he also does demand perfect obedience. Okay, this sounds familiar too. Um, He promises heaven for those who obey and hell for those who disobey. Heaven, hell. Okay, this all sounds relatively familiar. Um, But can we relate to Allah? In a family relationship, in a relationship of love and trust, does Allah want my heart the way that our Father in heaven wants my heart? Your heart. No. No. Um, uh, People like to say, Muslims like to say, hey, we all believe in one God. We all have one God. You Christians, 
Jews, Muslims, we're the people who believe in one God, and that, that belief unites us. It's not the same God. It's not the same God. It's very different. Um, so God is a father who wants our hearts. God is a father who wants our hearts. What do you think is the appeal of a God who doesn't want to be your father and who doesn't make you his son or daughter? I want to say I think the appeal is external conformity. This, again, is very related to what we've been talking about in the book of Romans, which is addressing many temptations to be just a religious hypocrite. Islam, how are you saved in Islam? Well, there's something called the five pillars of Islam, five practices you do to be a good Muslim and to be saved, or I should say, to have your best chance at being saved. Um, pillar one is the Islamic creed. It's when you say, I believe in there's one God, only one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And you say it in kind of the way we might ask someone to say the sinner's prayer or confess their faith. Okay, there's that. Pillar two is prayer. You pray five times a day at set times. Pillar three is alms, giving alms, giving charity to the poor. Pillar four is fasting. They fast during a whole month, the Muslim month of Ramadan. Their calendar is not quite match up to ours. Um, and five, pilgrimage to the city of Mecca, if you can. And these practices are said in the Quran to require faith. They are said to require faith. But at the end of the day, these are very outward things. And Islam is very focused on the outside and on the externals much more than on the heart. Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that is a mysterious heart reality, to be regenerated, born again, made new by God. Muhammad said, you must keep the five pillars of Islam until you die. That's different. My wife was a missionary, you might know, some of you know, to Muslims in China for seven, eight years. She was a missionary to a little bitty Muslim minority group called the Hui, made up of 20.5 million people. <laughs> That's not many people in China. <laughs> That's not many people in China. So the Hui look like Chinese people. You wouldn't know that's a Muslim. You just think that's Chinese, but they're not. They're not. When they meet a Christian, they're like, oh yeah, you believe in God, just like us. We're not like those atheist Chinese, those secular Chinese. <laughs> and the Christians are like, we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> like, you know, we want you to know the good news of Jesus Christ and the Father in heaven. And what Megan saw, my wife, is she saw Muslims keeping the fast in the month of Ramadan. And fasting in the month of Ramadan means that from sun up to sundown, you do not eat. Are you working? Doesn't matter. You work your full day, whatever your job is, you do not eat. You eat before sunrise and you eat after sunset. So the month of Ramadan is a miserable month for Muslims. It's a miserable month. Um, what she saw mostly was that the Muslims she knew hated fasting. They hated Ramadan. And what do you think happened at the end of every day when they could finally eat? It was like a gluttonous feast. It was gluttony. It was self-indulgence. It was... Christians are supposed to fast. That's in the Bible, fasting. We don't have a whole month set apart for fasting. But there's a decent amount about fasting. And do you think God is going to be happy with you or me if we're like, I'm going to fast today and pray. And then at the end of the day, and I'm going to hate it the whole time. And then at the end of the day, 
I'm going to be a glutton. And God's like, good job. You kept the fast. You know what? Our God is not very interested in that. That kind of turns him off. He wants our hearts in anything we do for him that's religious. Our hearts. Um, now, there, there are Muslims. I'm going to keep giving you caveats because I think it's helpful. There are Muslims who think about this in more of a heart sort of a way, who actually want to know God as they conceive of him and who would not approve of the way that those people, those other Muslims, keep the month of Ramadan. But I'm talking about what the religion is and what it tends to, right? What it fundamentally is and how you see that expressed. Um, scripture commands us to do a lot of things. Scripture commands us to give. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Yeah, you have to give. But if you're not honoring God from your heart as you give, God isn't interested in your gifts. The Israelites had to sacrifice to be forgiven. They had to sacrifice bulls and oxen and goats and lambs. And there's a passage that's probably in there that I'm not going to read. It's all about God's prophets saying, stop sacrificing to God. You're disgusting him because it's only a cover for all the evil things you want to do. You're keeping this external practice very well, and it's awful because you're a religious hypocrite. Your heart does not belong to God. You have no interest in obedience to him, but you can do this thing on the outside that makes you look good. And that's a constant problem. God is a father. Fathers want their sons' hearts. Proverbs 23, 26 says, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. That's Solomon talking to his son, and that's our heavenly father talking to us. Give me your heart. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father the son in whom he delights. And the New Testament quotes this in Hebrews 12. In Islam, there's pressure to comply. But as Christians, we face a different pressure. We face a pressure to love our Father in heaven and to yield our hearts to him. And I want to tell you, that is actually a more intense pressure than Islam brings to bear. That's a higher standard. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a father, that is a higher standard than simply to obey an absolute master by conforming to the five pillars of Islam. We have a higher standard than Muslims for obedience. It's much higher, it's much harder. And we need to think about Muslim men and women that we might meet in Evansville and I wish I knew some. I wished as I was preparing the sermon that I knew some and loved some of them. Um, we need to think of them as men and women like you and me who are made to know and love God and who have some idea of God and that they need to please him, but they have no idea of his love. They have no idea of his love. And that's not how they think of him. So God is a father. As a father, he wants our hearts. Heart obedience is a higher standard. <laughs> Then Islam holds out. So now let's talk about Jesus. We talked about the Father. Let's talk about the Son. Um, the only begotten Son of God. What do Muslims say about him? So as Christians, we understand Jesus is the way. 
Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to the Father. Why is that? Well, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. He took on God's wrath against us. He's, he was fully God and fully man. He was uniquely qualified to do what no one else could do. And he expressed God's mercy by satisfying God's justice. I want to say that again. He expressed God's mercy by satisfying God's justice. And I'm talking about the way that he died for us on the cross. He bore God's anger and wrath against sin. So how does, how does, how does Jesus express God's justice? By bearing God's anger and wrath against sin. God is, is sending a message. The cross is a witness. The cross is a witness to God. Uh, my standards are not flexible. They are not flexible. I do not bend them. I do not break them. I am righteous. I am holy. Someone will pay. Someone will pay. There will be blood. There will be a death. It will either be the death of Christ or it will be your death if you won't come to Christ. But there will be a death. God's standards are not up for questioning. That's the message of the cross. Maybe you don't think about it that way. But what other message is the cross? The other message of the cross is, I am merciful. I sent Jesus to do this so that you could be forgiven. This is an expression of my love. And the cross is both of those things at the same time. And that's at the heart of our faith because that's at the heart of how we come to God, isn't it? Romans 3, 25 through 26 says that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, which means a sacrifice that takes away wrath, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's mercy, but it doesn't say that, does it? It says that it shows God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, his standards, his holiness so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, we see that as Christians, when God shows us mercy and love and forgiveness, he does it in a way that also shows how just he is and how holy. So, why am I going into this? Um, if you were to ever pick up the Quran and start reading, you would see over and over again repeated this idea, Allah is merciful. Allah is forgiving. Allah is loving. You would see that. You would see that message. Sounds like a good message. Let me tell you a story. Um, I think this is from one of the other Muslim holy books. So, in any case, this is a story that's told in Islam. So there was a, a, a man, a Jewish man, who was a murderer, and he was a mass murderer. He had killed 99 people. And he decided to see if God might forgive him and if he might be able to repent and have God accept him anyway. So he was walking along the road and he saw a monk. I don't know why he saw a monk. I don't know. Anyway, so he was a Jewish man. He saw a monk and he went to the monk and said, I've killed 99 people. Um, will God forgive me? And the monk said, you're very evil. I don't know that God will forgive you. So he says, well, that's not the news I was hoping to hear. So he kills the monk, makes it an even hundred, and he keeps going. And then he goes and he meets, he meets someone else, a scholar, or something. And he says, can I be forgiven? And, he, and, and the man tells him, okay, there is a village full of people who know God and who will help you repent. I assume it was a village full of Muslims. 
And, and he says, you go there. Leave this city we're in. You go there. And so the man starts to go on his way to repentance, right? <laughs> so he's walking along, and the time comes for him to die. It was just his time to die as he's going to repent. And so the angels of mercy come from heaven, and, and the angels of wrath come from hell. And they both come, and they start fighting over the soul of this man. And, and the angels of wrath have an easy case to make. He killed a hundred people. He should go to hell. And the angels of mercy say, he was on his way to repent. Um, and, so, and so they ask Allah what to do. And Allah says, measure the distance from the city that he started in and the village to where he was going and see where he was in relation to those. And if he was a little bit closer to the village where he was going to find mercy, then I'll forgive him. And, and as the angels are measuring the distance, Allah shrinks the path and changes the geography so that it will be a shorter distance from where the man died to the village where he was going to repent so that he'll find mercy and get into heaven. Now, I think we can fairly call that a story of mercy. And here's my question. Is that a story about justice? <laughs> no, it's not a story about justice. It's not a story about justice. People think Allah is a very harsh deity, a very harsh God. I think he's a very merciful God. I think, though, that he's not a very just God. I think he's an arbitrary God. What's the standard? <laughs> how do you know that you'll be forgiven? How, how has God shown that he, in fact, is actually good and holy, and that his standards always matter to him? And how has he provided a basis so that you can be forgiven that, doesn't also, that isn't a contradiction when he says, my standards matter, <laughs> and then he says, I'll forgive you? In Christianity, our answer is the cross. In Islam, what's the answer? Our Father in heaven is not like Allah. When he makes promises to us, and when he has standards for us, and when he extends mercy to us, they're all based on his consistent character as a father. Sometimes in your home, you dads, you are arbitrary with your kids. Like you say a standard, and two of the kids get punished for not, for not obeying your standard, and then the next kid, you're just like tired, and you're like, uh, I guess he gets a pass. And then your, your other kids resent you because they see that you're inconsistent and you're arbitrary. And you're, yeah, you're merciful, I guess, but your mercy is random. It's like you don't care about the standards. Our Father in heaven is not like this, and we shouldn't be like this. We're not supposed to be arbitrary. We're supposed to be good. We're supposed to be merciful and just and make promises that we keep like our Father in heaven. By the way, what do Muslims say about Jesus? If he's not God's son in Islam, which he's not, <laughs> who is he? He's just another great prophet. He did miracles and he raised the dead. He's a great prophet. Not as great as Muhammad. Did he die on the cross? No. No, no. Muslims say Jews and Christians were deceived. They were deceived. He never died on the cross. That's a lie. 
Um, in fact, they say, that is very weak. <laughs> they laugh at us. They laugh at us. If you talk with a serious or devout Muslim, they'll laugh at you. Why? You're God. He died. What a weakling. What a loser. You Christians. Our God would never let himself be trapped by his enemies. Our God is too strong. We say, your God is too weak to love his enemies and die for them. Our God has a mighty love. Our God is so strong and so powerful that he can die for his enemies and bring them into his kingdom. That is our God. That's not weakness, that's strength. That's strength. Okay. So God is a Father who wants our hearts and our heart-level obedience. And even the way that he saves us shows his Father's heart to us. And he shows his character to us on the cross of Jesus Christ. And his love comes to us that way, and it comes to us as his enemies, as his enemies. That's what I want to talk about next. Let's talk about enemies. God wants his enemies to become his sons, his daughters. He wants to be their dad. Remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus lived those words out, didn't he? That's how he treated us, his enemies. He loved us. He loved us. So the way Islam thinks of those outside the faith is at least similar to us. Because you're in or you're out. You're a Christian. You're, you're a pagan in that sense. And you're either in Islam or you're out. And if you're out, you're what's called a kafir which means disbeliever, unbeliever, pagan, infidel, all those things. Um, and depending on the part of the Quran that you read, you will see in the earlier parts of the Quran, when Muhammad was still trying to make converts to Islam through proselytizing, through words, persuasion, you'll see tolerance, tolerate, be, be at peace with the kafir. And as you read later parts of the Quran, as, Muslim, as Muhammad was becoming a military leader who spread Islam through conquests, which he did very successfully, by the time he died, he had united the Arab tribes. And, and ever after that, Islam has had not just religious leaders, but political, religious, military leaders, all at the same time. One man who does all those things, spiritual, political, military, that is Islam. That is Islam. Um, and as you read the later parts of the Quran, you'll see, well, you'll read things like this. This is from Surah, Surah is like chapter 8, 12 of the Quran. Remember, O Prophet, Prophet is Muhammad. Remember, O Prophet, when your Lord revealed to the angels, I am with you, so make the believers, the Muslims, stand firm. I will cast horror into the hearts of the disbelievers, so strike their necks and strike their fingertips. And you might think again of reporters getting their heads cut off on live television. That's what I thought of. Strike their necks and their fingertips. Now, there's many Muslims, as I already said, who don't have much of an interest in doing this. They're just trying to survive in China. Um, 
Or they've mixed Islam with their folk religions and they just live their lives in fear of evil spirits. They're just trying to manage that. Or, or you have some devout conservative Muslims who make an argument that, you know what, the earlier parts of the Quran, the earlier parts of Muhammad's example are the parts that matter now. Um, what we might call radical Muslims or Muslim terrorists think that's disingenuous. <laughs> they think that's wrong. They think it's clear that Islam has a trajectory towards taking over the world through political violence. Um, all I want to say to you about this is that uh, Islam can be used to justify all those things. You can find plenty of fuel, plenty of fuel in the Quran, in the other holy books, in the life of Muhammad, in the history of Islam to justify violence. Plenty. Um, but you can't do that as a Christian. The Bible actually doesn't justify terrorism or military movements. You can't follow Jesus into a life of military conquest. Why? Because he didn't take up the sword. He didn't take up the sword. He died for his enemies, and that is how the church has grown. <laughs> the church of God has grown through the blood of the martyrs. Maybe one of us has said this here before, but here's a famous quote from an early church father. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How does the church grow? We die. We die for our enemies. You and I wouldn't even be here if that weren't the case. In Acts chapter 7, there's a man named Stephen who's one of the first Christian martyrs. He was a deacon in the earlier church. Um, he did two things. There's a, there's a story you can, you can read about him. He gives this awesome sermon. And he, he gives this sermon. That's thing number one. He speaks very hard truth to the Jews in Jerusalem. Very sharp truth. <laughs> and he cuts them to the heart. Um, he makes them so angry. Thing number two is he dies because they murdered him. And in his final moments, in Acts 7, 59 through 60, it says this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. So that's, that's the Christian religion for you. Imagine that the people killing Stephen were Islamic terrorists. Okay. Okay, now imagine that, you, that Stephen is the man you know. Okay, now imagine he's your son or your brother or your dad. And try to imagine that man you love saying those words as he's being brutally murdered. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's horrible. There's a lot of crying when Stephen died that way. And it's one of the proudest moments of the early church. It's beautiful. It, it's a display of the Father's love for his enemies. It's a display of God's power in the face of all the violence and brutality that Satan has to offer. It's, it's an example for us to imitate. There's a lot we could say about opposing evil and, and how and how not to be stupid. <laughs> the apostles didn't just die every time that their enemies wanted to kill them. But that's the idea, right? Our love would lead us to lay down our lives for people who hate us, like Islamic terrorists. 
And Islam has nothing like that. Kill. Just kill. Kill the enemies. So we've talked a lot about fathers, um, some about sons. I want to end with a word about sons, young men in particular. Uh, men, men are made to fight. If you've come to the, the men's night the past couple of Fridays we've had it, you've heard Jake talk about manhood. Men are made to fight. We have broad shoulders. We have testosterone that makes us feel crazy sometimes. Just like women have estrogen, which makes them crazy all the time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to get in trouble here. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, no, men have t- testosterone. And young men have extra testosterone. And they have all this aggression, right? <laughs> they need something to fight. Um, and, and they have these broad shoulders so that, if need be, they can die in place of their wives and children, so that they can bear the burdens in the home and in the world, and, yes, die in battle if need be, so that their wives and children don't. Um, the question about men is not whether or not they'll fight, it's what will they fight? <laughs> what will they fight? Um, who, who will teach them the right use for their aggression and their strength? Who will teach them the right battles to fight? Who will guide them? Islam... It's obvious, right, that Islam is going to appeal to young men, especially the more military strain of it. Isn't that obvious? I mean, think about this message for a young man. Hey, I have a battle for you to fight. I have a challenge. The first one is an obedience challenge. It's, it's jihad. You've heard the word jihad a lot, right? Jihad, we think it means holy war. It actually just means struggle, struggle. There's many kinds of struggles. The first jihad is self-control. The five pillars of Islam. You need the jihad of controlling yourself and obeying Allah. That's a challenge. Oh, but there's more jihad. There's more struggle. There's a whole world of enemies out there. And I can tell you how to fight them. And I can look out at the Western world that hates our guts as Muslims and is trying to import their homosexuality into our countries, which actually... <laughs> Which actually is true of America. That is one thing we export. We export the murder of our babies, we export homosexuality, we export many evil things in our entertainment, and the Muslims take it personally. And I don't blame them. I don't blame them. So I just want to say that. All right. So they look out at this hostile Western world as they see it, right? And they're like, our religion is going to conquer. We have a divine right to conquer. I can point you to the enemies. If you die in battle, there will be even more reward for you. If you die as a suicide bomber, as a martyr, there will be even more reward for you. I have a use for your strength. I know where to channel your testosterone. Can you feel the appeal of that? (laughs) I hope you can. A life of violence for religious purposes in a religion that has no father in heaven. Well, the devil is happy to be the father. He is happy to take the testosterone of these young men and put it in service of his hate and violence. Happy to do that. He's happy to do that. And we should all be able to understand this because here in America we have problems that are bigger than Islamic terrorism. Not to get all geopolitical on you, but we have gangs of angry, fatherless young men roaming the streets. Their strength is going towards crime and eating each other alive, which, by the way, 
Eating each other alive is something that happens a lot in Islam. But back to America. Here they are, they're in gangs. There are school shootings. My dad, I can't remember, I can't count the number of times he said to me whenever we talk about the latest thing, this didn't happen when I was a kid in America. This is my dad talking. It's in school shootings, like, not that there were no killers on the loose, but school shootings, and then I, I, read, I read something, an article talking about how 2022 was the worst year so far for school shootings. It said, school shootings have increased 163% since 2020, and 1900% since 2010. What is going on? What is going on in America? There's, a, there's, 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 all, these, there's all this violence. Most of it is men. <laughs> Most of it's men. A lot of it young men committing violence. And then there's something you may have heard of called the Red Pill Movement. I won't go into it very much. You don't have to look it up. I'll just define it for you. It's younger and also like middle younger or middle-aged men who are angry that they live in a, in a society that hates masculinity and that wants to stamp it down, which we do. You should know that that is actually America. America does hate masculinity. It also hates femininity. It hates them both. It really does. And these men are like, our society doesn't want our energy, our strength. They just think that we're toxic. And so, we can be toxic. We're going to opt out of Christianity. We're going to opt out of marriage. We'll learn how to use women for sex without loving them. Because we know the game. We'll play the game. And we'll win. And these bitter men, as they get older, they become twisted fathers to a younger generation who wants to learn how to see through it all. And this bitterness is a real deal. And some of you know what it's like to feel that way. <laughs> Maybe not now. But, I mean, how many of us men haven't been bitter at some point in our lives? What is the hope for all of these men? Young, old, violent, bitter. It's what we've been talking about this whole sermon. It's fathers. It's fathers. It's knowing the heart of God's fatherly love for us. It's, it's him saying, you rest in my love. I'm going to give you your identity. You're going to fight my battles, my way, not hate, not violence. Battles, though, hard battles, but not those. No bitterness, no bitterness. It's just... Stamp that bitterness right out. And as fathers, as men, because every man is a father in some sense, with or without kids, just as every woman is a mother in some sense, with or without kids, because of God's design of us, we need to be loving our own children and training them and teaching them, reflecting to them the Father's heart. And we need to be able to love men in Evansville, young men, angry and bitter young men. We need to be fathers to our community. We need to be fathers to Muslims in the community. We need to show them God's fatherly hearts. That's our calling. That's what our Father in Heaven wants from us. And that's our inheritance. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for loving helpless sinners like us. Um, when we were your enemies, we had no claim on your mercy, but you gave it. 
You gave Jesus your son so that we could be your sons and daughters through the power of the Spirit. We want to love you. We want to be witnesses of your love. We pray that you would make us witnesses, and we pray that you would teach us how to open our hearts to you and give ourselves to you. Strengthen our men to be fathers. Strengthen our women to be mothers. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.